passage of God's Word that we will be looking at this morning is found in the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 19, and this morning we'll be looking at the first 16 verses. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. There it was, or now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them, to be crucified. About 20 years ago, a popular singer named Alanis Morissette had a very popular song on radio called Ironic. In that song, in the lyrics of that song, she lists a number of things that she found to be ironic. Some examples, rain on your wedding day, good advice that you didn't take, A traffic jam when you're already late. 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. What's really ironic about that song is that it keeps misusing the word ironic. Just because you're disappointed by the outcome of something doesn't mean it's ironic. Matter of fact, it is said that the word irony is one of the most abused words in the English language. And I'm no English major, never was. But, as a matter of fact, I boned up on 
the meaning of the word irony this week, so I could hopefully use it appropriately this morning, because I do want to talk about irony. Just as a little refresher from middle school grammar, an ironic statement is when what you say, what you, what you mean by what you say is actually the opposite of the literal meaning of the words you use. So, in other words, if it's a cold and rainy day, and you walk into the office and you say to your fellow workers, what wonderful weather we're having today, you're being intentionally ironic, because the meaning of what you're saying is actually the opposite of the literal words that you're using. If you were to walk into this worship service and say, this must be a Presbyterian church because of all the shouting and clapping, you're being ironic because the literal, what you mean by your words is actually the opposite of what you're literally saying. Related to that, an ironic situation is when the outcome of something is the opposite of what you would expect in that situation. So in other words, if there were a convention of firefighters in town and the hotel where they were meeting burned down, that would be an ironic situation. But what I really want to focus on this morning is a device of literature that's called dramatic irony. And it's related to the basic meaning of irony, but dramatic irony is when you have a story, whether you're talking about a movie or a play or a book, and in the story what happens is you have the characters acting something out, and they're having dialogue and carrying out actions, but you as the reader or you as the audience know more than they know. And because you know more of the story, you know the bigger picture of things as the audience or the reader, what the actual characters in the story say and do comes across as ironic to you. You you understand something entirely different by the things they say than what they mean to say because they don't see the big picture that you see as the reader or the audience. Just as an example would be the last scenes in uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Juliet uh, drinks some uh, po- uh, a, a potion so that she goes to sleep. She, she actually is unconscious, but Romeo believes she's dead. And so all the dialogue and the actions that Romeo takes, you as a reader, you know the real story, you know the truth that she's really not dead, and so it makes your understanding, interpretation of the comments and events different. That's, what's, uh, that's called d- dramatic irony. And the reason I bring all this up is it has an awful lot to do with John's Gospel. Those who uh, write and and study John's gospel often comment on the fact that John, the apostle, in writing this gospel, really understood that that concept of dramatic irony. And whenever he saw it, as he gave the account of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wherever he saw it, he seems to emphasize it. And we see it particularly in this last section where it deals with his trial. And I want to be focusing on that. Let me give you a couple examples of it earlier in the book, though. First of all, he gives us the big picture. He wants us who are reading this gospel, before he tells us about the life of Christ, he wants us to see the bigger picture, doesn't he? Go back to chapter 1. That's where he steps back and says, here, let me show you who Jesus Christ really is. And so just to remind you, very familiar verses, his name, his word, his term for Jesus Christ is the word at the beginning of chapter 1, and he says, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus Christ, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He wants you to see the glory of the pre-incarnate, the, 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 the pre-incarnate Christ, the Christ as he existed when all things else were created. Not only was he there with God, not only did he actually create all things with God the Father, but he actually was God. And we're to understand that about Christ from the beginning. And then down in verse 9, he goes on to say, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So this eternal Son of God who created all things was coming into the world. And he goes on to say he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And he wraps it all up in verse 14 by saying, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So everything else that John is going to tell us in the Gospel of John is to be understood in the light of where he came from, who he is, and all of his divine glory, and that he has come into the world, that the eternal Son of God has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And so as you, as the reader of the Gospel, as the hearer of the Gospel, understand that, awful lot of the events and dialogue that happened during the course of the life of the ministry of Christ come off as ironic and he points it out in several cases throughout the book many different cases one small example is over in chapter 7 he uh, is talking about in that context he's talking about how people were starting to try to figure out who Jesus was and for those of us who know the bigger picture it's kind of funny to hear what they say because in chapter 7 they beginning in verse 40 it says when they heard these words some of the people said this is this really is the prophet Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now John knows that we know that Jesus really was born in Bethlehem, but he doesn't comment on it. He just points it out that we as the readers know more than they do, and so we see more than they see, and their confusion isn't confusion for us. A a more important example is over in chapter 11, and this actually comes into play in the trial of Jesus. This is where the Jewish leadership are plotting against Jesus, and Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up to address them. And uh, you'll remember these words from uh, verse 49 of chapter 11. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You see what I'm saying? What Caiaphas meant by those words was dramatically different than how you or I understand them. And John, actually, this is one of the rare cases where John points it out. He goes on to say, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, John took a whole different meaning from Caiaphas' words than what Caiaphas intended to mean by them. That's dramatic irony. Well, here in, in the trial, what's fascinating to me is we go through the trial, particularly this part of the trial before Pilate, we see dramatic irony again and again and again, where those who are speaking mean one thing, but we as the reader, in the light of what John has told us about who Jesus Christ really is, see and understand something very different. You see, this is the gift 
that God gives to those who are his children. You and I, if you're here and you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you've been given this gift by God, the ability to see by faith who he is in all circumstances. To have your eyes open, to see the glory of Christ, even in his lowest moments of his earthly ministry. And a matter of fact, as you see who he is in chapter 1 compared to who he appears to be here in chapter 19, his glory shines all the more brightly. And that's what I hope you'll see this morning. I want for your consideration of the beginning of John 19 to leave you on your knees before Christ, worshiping him because of his suffering in light of who he was. When I was 16, I remember the Holy Spirit turning on the lights for me. Up until that point, I thought Jesus Christ was just kind of like a comic book figure in my Sunday school papers. He was like a mythological figure, a fairy tale. But then all of a sudden, and I can point to a few weeks of time, somewhere in a few weeks of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that year of my junior year in high school, the Holy Spirit turned on the lights and all of a sudden I could see the glories of who Jesus Christ really was. That's what I want to look at here as we look at the deeper irony of Jesus' trials, this dramatic irony of who he appeared to be and who his enemies said he was in light of who the Holy Spirit has shown us he really was in that situation. We left off last week at the end of chapter 18. Jesus is in the midst of his trials. He has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken to the Jewish leadership before the Jewish high priest and the Jewish Sanhedrin to stand trial. They brought false witnesses against him, falsely accused him, and convicted him of blasphemy just for saying who he really was. And then, having convicted him of blasphemy, which was, as they say in the text we read this morning, a law that demanded he be put to death according to Jewish law, They, however, being under the iron boot of the Roman Empire, did not have the authority to put anyone to death in this situation, so they had to take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, in Jerusalem. And so they take him to Pilate's uh, residence, and they were hoping that Pilate would just rubber stamp their verdict, but instead he insists on trying Jesus himself. He examines him, and after having done so, he comes back out to the Jewish leadership and says, I find no fault in him. And he intends to release him. He offers to release either Jesus or a true murderous rebel by the name of Barabbas. And the Jewish people, by the provoking of the Jewish leadership, said, no, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. At this point, we can see it. We've, We've seen it developing through this trial. Pilate's a very conflicted, weak, unstable, cowering man. As no matter how much he tends to boast and try to sound powerful here, he's, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he truly thinks Jesus is innocent and doesn't deserve to be crucified. And he really hates the Jews, and the last thing he wants to do is to allow these, these Jews to back him into a corner and force him to do something he doesn't want to do to manipulate him. But on the other hand... He genuinely fears the the ability that Jews had to get him into trouble with the authorities over him, particularly the emperor. He was already in trouble with the emperor. He already had a bad track record in his oversight of this part of the Roman Empire. 
And so he knew that if they complained and they brought a charge against him, that he would be in trouble. And so he's, he's in a dilemma here. And so in verse 1, what we see is his next attempt to get out of this situation, to try to control it for his own purposes. And so what he does is he tells his soldiers to take Jesus off, chain him to a pole, and flog him. Or scourge him. Some translations use the word scourge. I'm sure most of you have probably heard the description of this. And John, interestingly, doesn't get into graphic detail about what scourging is. But just briefly, a scourge was done with a whip that was actually a handle with probably three leather ropes attached to the handle. Each one of those ropes had tied into it at several segments along the way, had tied into it pieces of metal, sharp pieces of metal, pieces of human bone, uh, stones, sharp stones, things that would grip the flesh whenever they would flog, when they would, they would use the whip on the back of the prisoner, it would actually grip the flesh, and so when the, the whip was pulled back, it would remove the flesh from the back. That was its purpose. And so that's what flogging was, and that's what they did to Jesus, although they probably did not do the full flogging. If you read the gospel accounts, it appears that he was actually flogged twice. That this one was a flogging which was given typically to criminals who didn't deserve the death penalty in the Roman Empire. This was just a punishment, and it wasn't as extensive as the flogging that they would do right before a crucifixion. That flogging was intended to basically render the criminal half dead so that he didn't last very long on the cross. If it's true that Christ was actually flogged twice, because John mentions this one here with the purpose that actually, he says it clearly, Pilate was hoping that he would be able to release Jesus after this flogging. But then the other gospel writers seem to say that he was flogged again immediately before he was put on the cross, which would have been consistent with Roman practice to really weaken him and really beat him to a bloody pulp. That would have come later. But his purpose was to say, you know, to to punish him in a severe way in hopes that the Jews would accept that and, and, and allow him to be released. Well, what happens next is one of these dramatically ironic moments. Before the soldiers take Jesus back to Pilate to do with him as he will, the soldiers decide to have some cruel fun with Jesus. And so they take, they they grab some branches with big, long thorns on them, and they weave them together into what looks like a crown. And if you think of a crown, those old radiant crowns they used to have in ancient culture, uh, if you think of the Statue of Liberty with the the spikes, it was that kind of a crown that they they were imitating, mockingly imitating, but obviously painful when they drove it down onto his head. And then they got an old soldier's robe and put it on his shoulders like a royal cloak. The other gospel writers said they put a reed in his hand to be like a pretend uh, scepter. And what it says here is that in verse 3, they they came up to him, but they kept coming up to him. The the verb, verb that's used there in the tense that it's in means they did it over and over. So you get the idea that there are a line of soldiers coming up and they pretend to kneel before Jesus. And they would say, ironically, Hail, King of the Jews. But then what they did was they would strike him with their fist or spit on him or pull out his beard. The dramatic irony of that scene, as you imagine it, is what we know Jesus to be. As they say to him mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews, and then beat him again. 
We have the eyes of faith. I hope everyone here has the eyes of faith to see Jesus in all of his glory of John chapter 1 and then to see him here in John 19. Flogged, bloody, beaten, humiliated, mocked, humiliated. While we know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the true King of the Jews, the covenant King of his people, The one who John 1 tells us through whom all things were made. The one who Mary said when she prayed, this is is the one who causes kings to be raised up onto thrones and casts them down from thrones. He's the, the Lord of kings. He raises up kings and casts them down. This is the one who said himself he had the power to call upon 12 legions of angels to come and do his bidding. So why does he allow these soldiers to humiliate him and dishonor him in this way? Jesus would say, so that the scriptures must be fulfilled. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, says in verse 6, it quotes the Messiah, this promised Messiah, saying, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the promised Messiah says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It was prophesied that the Son of God, when he came as the Messianic king, would be treated this way. He suffered this, this terrible humiliation before the eyes of men. He did it for you, and he did it for me. It was for us. You see, we were created to fear God. We were created to worship him in reverence. But we became sinners. And in our fallen nature, it is our nature to blaspheme him and to mock him and to despise him. If you don't believe it, just Watch late night television sometime. That's our nature. And so by faith, we see this scene as John portrays it before Pilate. By faith, we see our Messiah beaten and bloody and humiliated with a crown of thorns on his head and a bloody robe over his shoulders. And we hear the words by faith of Isaiah 53, which says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Yes, we see the glory of God in chapter 1 as he is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father in eternity past, creating all the universe. We see his glory there, but in a real sense, we see his glory more here because that same Son of God allows himself to be humiliated like that because it's what we deserve. He suffered for us. The flogging was in our place. The humiliation is for us. And so it should drive you to your knees to worship this bloody, humiliated Savior. 
Well, Pilate then presents Jesus again to the Jewish leadership. He stands there with the crown of thorns and the bloody robe. And what we hear next is another one of those dramatically ironic statements. He says, behold the man. Behold the man. And what he meant, what he intended to mean by those words and what we hear are two different things. What Pilate meant to say was, look at this poor, pathetic creature. Is this the one that you consider a threat to your nation? Is this the one that you consider a threat to the Roman Empire? How ridiculous. And it was Pilate's hope is that the crowds would look on him in that weakened, bloody, beaten state and say, all right, he suffered enough, let him go to get Pilate off the hook. But when we hear Pilate, we who have the big picture with the eyes of faith and the ears of faith, we hear Pilate say, behold the man. We see Jesus who he really is. This eternal son of God who's equal with the father who created all things, who has become flesh and dwelt among us. The son of man, as he always called himself. The second Adam, the one who came to live in obedience and righteousness, which Adam and Eve failed to do, which we have all failed to do. He came to do the will of God and to do it perfectly up until this very moment and beyond. He was humanity at its best on display. That even in that state, with all of his power and all of his glory, even in that state, he did not sin. Behold the man. And because he was sinless, then he was qualified to be the Lamb of God. The sacrifice. The one who would hang on the cross and shed his blood and suffer the wrath of God that we deserved. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The perfect man for you and me. That he might bring us to God. Praise God that he has brought us to God by that suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the glory of God on display. It says that Christ suffered this so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be brought to God. And so according to God's eternal plan, as it was prophesied long beforehand, Pilate presents Jesus to the Jewish leadership and says, Behold the man, and they say, Crucify him. Now what's interesting is at this point, the Jewish leaders add to the charge. They've already charged Jesus with insurrection, with sedition, claiming to be a king and therefore a threat to the Jews and to the Roman nation. But now they add their real charge. It's interesting they bring it in at this point. That's kind of their trump card. Say, so, you know, we have a law. You may not care about our laws in, relig- in re- religious terms, but according to our law, anyone who claims to be God and commits blasphemy deserves to die, must die according to our law, and you're called upon to uphold our law. And that what is what he has claimed. He has made himself to be the son of God. And we hear the Jewish leadership say that, and we say, amen, he is the son of God. That's not a charge. 
That's not something he's guilty of. That's something that he has clearly claimed. That's who he is as we understand the big picture. But the Jews see him as a deceiver serving Satan. What's interesting is Pilate's reaction. Did you pick up on that? It says that Pilate was even more afraid when he heard that he claimed to be the son of God. Now, what that implies is that he was already afraid. Now, this blustering, boasting, you know, indignant Roman official, what John is saying, he was already afraid, and we know that because he was afraid of the Jews and what the Jews could do to them with this complaint. But it says he's even more afraid now, and the only way we can understand this is to understand the Roman mindset. Pilate, even though he probably was very secular in many ways, he was still a Roman, and the vast majority of Romans were very superstitious people. You know the Roman worldview. They had religious views. Their views is that there are gods, many gods, capricious gods, weird gods, sinful gods, but there are all kinds of gods, and those gods often would intervene in the affairs of man. And so it wasn't unusual to say say that some god has come and been among men. And so when Pilate hears that, he begins to wonder, well, is, is there something supernatural about this guy? And I think added into, as we know from Matthew's gospel that Pilate's wife had actually sent him a note remember that note she sent to him it said I'll read it to you it says his wife sent word to him saying have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream here's a guy who believes that the gods sometimes intervene in the affairs of men and his wife has had a a vision a dream saying this guy's righteous don't have anything to do with him he's scared And so he pulls Jesus aside. So he takes him in from the crowd. He doesn't want to have this conversation in front of the Jews. He takes him in privately and says to him, where are you from? And I don't know why. I honestly don't know why, but Jesus doesn't answer him here. I would see this as a witnessing opportunity myself. But see, I couldn't look at Pilate and know his heart, but Jesus could. And Jesus knew that his heart was hardened. Divine silence to a hardened heart is a tragic and terrible thing. But Jesus doesn't explain where he's from. But you know what? Pilate reacts in this case like all insecure people. Insecure people in power, they start boasting and blustering and trying to exert their control. And so Pilate basically says to Jesus, Don't you know that I hold your life in my hands? And we're the readers that have the big picture that know John chapter 1 and say, Are you kidding me? You think you've got him in his life in your hands? You're in his hands. And that's really how Jesus responds. Look at how Jesus responds to what Pilate says. He's really the one in control. He says, you're where you are by my father's appointment. You can't thwart his will and you're accountable to him for all that you do. That's basically what Jesus is saying. My father puts you where you are. And you're fulfilling his purposes in spite of your intentions. And one day you're going to have to give an account for the decision you're making right now. But understand that actually these Jewish leaders are more guilty in the eyes of my father than you are because they should have the big picture. They have been given the very oracles of God. They've been given revelation of God. They've been given the promises of the Messianic King. They should be doing the right thing here. Because they know the big picture. And so the fact that they reject the light they've been given, they are under greater condemnation than you are, Pilate. Well, Pilate then 
takes Jesus outside to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowds one more time and again tries to release him, tries to exonerate him and release him. But the Jews make their strongest threat yet. They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That is where they boldly and clearly said, you either crucify this man or we are going to appeal to the Roman emperor. So Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. But he gets in one more contemptuous dig against the Jews and makes another one of these dramatically ironic statements when he says to them, Behold your king. What Pilate intended to say with those words, what his meaning behind those words is, You despicable Jews, this weak, beaten, bloody wretch is the kind of king that you deserve and the best you could ever hope for. That's what he really intended to say when he said, Behold your king. He meant to mock them as well as mocking Jesus. To Pilate, Jesus, as he stood there in that weakened, bloody, beaten state, to Pilate, that was the antithesis of a king in earth's terms. It's a funny joke to Pilate. You know what's really striking at this point is the response of the Jewish leadership. Do you hear what they say? We have no king but Caesar. How did those words ever come out of the mouths of the leaders of the Jews? That's a denial of the whole covenant of the Old Testament. God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And they understood that God is their king and that any earthly rulers that rule over them rule by the Father's appointment, just as Jesus said. But ultimately, God is always the king of his people. And yet these Jewish leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. You know, what's interesting is that Matthew adds another bit of dramatic irony. This isn't, John doesn't record this, but hear the words of the people uh, that come up right after the the events uh, of this declaration. And, And Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Oh, that they might truly have meant that. That the blood of the Lamb of God might cleanse us from sin. But instead, they're saying, we will take an accountability for the decision to put the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of Man, to death on a cross. You know, when we, by faith, who by God's grace have had our eyes open and our ears open to hear the truth, when we hear Pilate say, behold your king, we fall to our knees and we say, behold our king. When you've been given the eyes of faith, when your heart's been changed by God's grace, when you see the truth, when you see the big picture, then you can say without any irony whatsoever, Hail the King of the Jews, the Messiah that's been promised to God's people ever since sin entered into this world. Behold the man, the second Adam, the Son of Man, the perfect, sinless one, the eternal Son of God, who's fully God and fully man, who laid down his life on the cross and died as the Lamb of God in our place. And behold, our king, the one who conquered sin and death, 
by dying and then being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he reigns today as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, it's that vision of the bloody, beaten, but crucified and risen and ascended king, it's that vision that drove the early church in its worship and its evangelistic zeal. I want to close by just reading to you a prayer of the early church. And I want you to hear where they talk about, they call upon God by his spirit to fill them and to use them to change the world and to turn the world upside down. That's what they're praying for. But listen, I just want to read it to you and let you hear how this scene of Christ in his utter humiliation before Pilate and the Jewish leadership, it's this scene with a big picture understanding of where it was headed to the cross and the empty tomb that drove them in their evangelistic zeal. Listen to the prayer. This is from Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We see the glory of Christ as we see him by faith seated on the throne in heaven with all the church triumphant and the angels of heaven gathered around him. But in a very real sense, we see his glory much more clearly, much more powerfully, especially as redeemed sinners, as we see him beaten and bloodied and humiliated before men as he went to the cross to pay for our sins. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, We don't boast about the fact that we see the truth of your word because we know that we would mock and despise and reject this truth just like any other sinners if it hadn't been for the grace of God that changed us. Thank you for sending your spirit to turn our stone hearts into hearts of flesh that desire to know the truth, that come to you seeking to know what's true that you've opened our spiritual eyes, you've opened our spiritual ears, that we might hear and see the glory of Christ revealed in your word. And Lord, may we today especially be driven to worship and to sharing the message of the truth by the increased understanding, the deeper understanding of the glory of Christ revealed in his suffering before and especially on the cross as he died in our place, as the Lamb of God, who is worthy of our praise. We pray in his name. Amen.